Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Dilgut, hello, August Voltish Stach, a playback. With me, Evelyn O'Rourke. And on this week's show, as one American president jets into town. The news this lunchtime that Joe Biden will arrive here for a visit to Ireland, visiting both North and South. Another goes to court. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. The local library takes centre stage. Maybe they have a reason for wanting to explore and understand this material. This is not a way to explain about sex education to children. Father Peter McVeary makes waves. Where are all these people who are going to be evicted? Where are they going to go? And behind the scenes of that famous moment 25 years ago from the Good Friday Agreement. And I said, Bono, we need your help. We need to have a moment where we bring together unionism and nationalism, John Hume and David Trimble. We begin with presidential business and the confirmation on Wednesday that President Joe Biden is coming to town. Antonishta Michal Martin welcomed the announcement with Brian Dobson on the News at One. Well, first of all, I think we welcome the visit and particularly in terms of the focus in marking the tremendous progress made over 25 years in terms of the Good Friday Agreement and peace in, in, in Ireland. Theresa Mannion then hot-footed it to Ballina to see the other for herself. The town is buzzing at the moment, that the bunching is going up. And found a cousin of Joe's hard at work. The community clean up here and the place looking fantastic. So yeah, it's all go here in Ballina. We're really looking forward to it. The significance of the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement was a thread throughout many programmes this week. It was on Good Friday in 1998 that a deal many thought was impossible was announced. The agreement brought an end to Northern Ireland's troubles, a conflict in which more than 3,500 people were killed and tens of thousands injured and bereaved. Vincent Carney there. And then on Friday morning, Good Friday morning, Anya Lawler was at Queen's University for Morning Ireland. And 25 years ago, the clock was ticking on the peace talks here in Belfast. It was time and beyond time for hope and history to rhyme. And one of the names on that agreement was that of then Sinn Féin president and negotiator Gerry Adams. And Gerry Adams is with us. So I remember on that morning, there was huge hope and optimism, but then that faded during the morning of Geoffrey Donaldson walked out. And then, as you say, David Trimble did sign the deal. Geoffrey Donaldson, now leading the DUP, still outside Stormont. You've said they should be given more time to make up their mind on the Windsor framework. But if they don't, then what? Over to the Irish government in particular. The Irish government have not been proactive. And so I do think that Jeffrey should be given a limited amount of time. He's refusing to go into an assembly over an issue which the assembly has no responsibility for. If they don't, then let's look at the whole thing and use. But, I mean, we're not waiting. One of the reasons why I'm doing the bit that I'm doing, working, is to make sure we don't waste time. And is Joe Biden spending less time here in Northern Ireland because there's no point in going to a Stormont that's not sitting? I sympathise with him. Not. I mean, why would he go to an empty building? He might as well go to a wake. And other familiar names from that time too cropped up in all sorts of ways this week, with Oliver Callan sitting in for Ryan, recalling... Uh, Oliver, read the Good Friday Agreement. Remember the legendary Mo Molum? She was really cool. Actually, when I was a kid in transition year at the time, uh, there was a competition to get to become a kind of a radio news presenter. They said, write uh, an interview to your favourite person to interview them. And it was Mo Molum. And I won the competition. That was my first radio gig. (laughs) That's how much of a nerd I was writing letters to Mo Molum. She had a great voice as well. Different to all the very sombre northern voices that we were hearing around then. 
And we will share more of the stories, memories and discussions that featured on Radio 1 this week, marking the anniversary later on in the programme. But back to this week, and while you may be busy digging out the bunting for Biden, the big issues like housing that have dominated the headlines for so long continue to be discussed. And it seems that while everybody knows there's a housing crisis, there is no one single solution in sight. But people are trying. A scheme put in place by one local authority is allowing them to purchase the homes of people who are aged over 60 and who are looking to downsize and in return offer them long-term social housing. Last week, one new block opened to prospective tenants and Brian O'Connell went along. But are people buying it? quite interesting isn't it the scheme is called right sizing and in return you have security of tenure remainder of your life and then the amount you pay in rent is means tested this woman I met was looking at a two bedroomed apartment and I asked her how she came to that decision at my age I would like a two bedroom place because my only child lives in Mayo what's the attraction for you then the attraction is no gardens no cutting grass no steps lots of things really and how do you feel about moving from your family home. Oh, that don't worry me at all. Yeah. If it worked out for you, you'd sell your house at a discount to the council and then you become a long-term tenant here. Any idea how much you'd be paying a month? That depends on your pension. It will take up to 50,000, depending on your age. I'm after paying £800 for leasing on my own since October. Do you think you'll be getting the keys here? They're the best one I've seen in a long time. And it's a safety aspect of it as well. You feel safe. I have alarms, everything in my house, and I still don't feel safe. Sounds like a deal could be done there, Claire. <laughs> Brian O'Connell. But while creative solutions are being discussed, the lifting of the temporary ban on evictions continues to make waves. Where are all these people who are going to be evicted? Where are they going to go? Earlier this week, Father Peter McVerry was predicting the impact that the lifting of the ban would have. As part of those conversations, he had also said that the Taoiseach had overridden Minister for Housing Barrow O'Brien's wish to extend the ban. Homelessness campaigner Father Peter McVerry has issued an apology to the Taoiseach today after he received unfortunate and inaccurate information, he said, which suggested that Leo Varadkar had overruled Minister for Housing Dara O'Brien on extending the eviction ban. Father McVerry spoke to Cormac O'Hara on drive time on Wednesday. I had said that the Taoiseach had overridden the minister in relation to this issue. And in light of the Taoiseach's denial and the minister's denial, I have withdrawn the word overridden as it suggests a conflict between the two of them. I accept that when the decision was made, the minister, all the ministers in the cabinet and the Taoiseach all made the decision together to end the ban. Did someone then call to to put you right? Is that what happened? The word I had been given by my sources was overridden and I accept that that is now inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to the real issue, Mm -hmm. which is where are all these people who are going to be evicted? Where are they going to go? Another man whose voice rang out on the airwaves too this week was, well, does he really need an introduction? God bless you all. We have to save our country. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. Donald Trump was in New York to face charges. Marion McKeown was there and she spoke to Claire Byrne. Well, it was like sort of an outdoor carnival meets a festival meets a day out for the bewildered, to be quite honest there. (laughs) There's a small park and that was where the New York Young Republicans had called for a mass 
protest. George Santos appeared very briefly before he realised that he was better off to get out of there because people close to me were started shouting at him, you're next. Marjorie Taylor Greene made a speech. I was 12 feet away from her. I couldn't understand a word she was saying. She was bundled out of there. Reports were queuing up to speak to protesters. In terms of the numbers, there were 100, 150 there. That was it. And other familiar voices to us here from America this week included golfer Rory McIlroy as he, Seamus Power and Shane Lowry are setting out for glory at the Masters in Augusta. And it seems that it doesn't matter how many millions of dollars you have in the bank, you can still dream. Yeah, I've let myself dream and let myself think about it before I go to sleep at night. And yeah, of course, because I think the more and more you play it over in your mind, the more ready you'll be for it. You've got to have dreams and you've got to be able to let yourself dream. And um, I'm certainly letting myself dream this week. And the power of sporting dreams is a wonderful thing. I mean, have you ever wondered what it might be like to get the magic call-up from your country? Alana McAvoy, yesterday she flew to America with the rest of the Irish squad for two games against the world champions, the USA. And she's been filling us in on the moment she got that text last Friday from the FBI communications officer. I was in work and I got a text off Gareth Maher. I actually happened to be on my 15-minute break in work and I was just sitting down. That's when the message popped up. My my 15-minute break turned into a 40-minute break because I couldn't. I couldn't stop crying. Like, I was just shaking, couldn't eat, couldn't nothing. Like And then, obviously, I had to explain to my manager that, look, I'm not going to be here for the next two or three weeks. And it was the longest shift of my life. I, I just couldn't wait to go home. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> the longest shift of her life. That brought a smile Things to my face. True. Darren Frehel there. And with a tear in our eye, a good moment to take a break. Bame Tarash, a young couple of nomad. Fud Tarash. Now this weekend, the chocolate is unleashed. The endless milk chocolate eggs, the delicious golden rabbits, the mountains of tinfoil, the mini eggs, the enormous eggs. Ray Darcy spoke to Sinead Hulukhan on Wednesday's programme. Sinead was reporting from where else but a chocolate factory in Mullingar and she was clearly enjoying the assignment. I can smell the candy floss here. There's honeycomb by my side, chocolate everywhere, sprinkles, smarties, lucky charms, you name it. I'm going to have a wonderful evening, I think. Now, Denise Buckley, the owner of this factory, is nearly collapsing from the hours that they're putting in making this chocolate magic happen this Easter. And she gave Ray the inside track on the chocolate world. And before we go lashing your chocolate into the fridge for safekeeping... Listen up. We have a, a restaurant in Mullingar and the Sugar Plum Sweeteries just beside it. Mm. And I suppose it's kind of the naughty to the nice. And everything we make is like what we love to eat ourselves. So a chocolate handbag or it's like Florentine, which is like almonds and, and hazelnut, like mermaid bars and eggs. And we obviously colour the, the tails. So then they're pink. And then we've Lego, which is like red and blue. So everything is edible to us. You're sort of a chocolate expert. So John with his 45 year old chocolate Easter egg. How do you, right. th- do you think that's edible? <laughs> I don't know now. It depends, but they do say it doesn't actually go off as well. Right. You have to keep everything to 19 degrees. That's your perfect temperature for eating chocolate and making it as well. Look, you know, I don't know whether I'd eat it, but yeah. it might be okay. He's had it in the fridge. Well, four fridges oh, to be exact. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about the fridge now. So, Because if... you're the expert again. Doesn't the fridge do damage to chocolate? Yeah, well, sometimes you'd find now that it might go soggy yeah. and then it just m- might tend to like uh, bloom and then the chocolate breaks too fast. As well. It's like they're conditioning the shop and in our chocolate factory has to be 19 degrees. So now our bodies are probably set to 19 degrees <laughs> because, because we're always a little bit cold. How long does it take to make a, an egg from start to finish? Uh, when we're doing a batch, like an hour. So by the right. time you get it packaged as well. So we haven't really slept in a couple of uh, days now, but it's all good. So we're flat out making hens that have mini eggs in them and all that good stuff. Right. So yeah. Yes, Easter eggs are big, big business. 
But how popular is chocolate? Like how much are we eating? For example, if I say offer to help the children finish their eggs on Sunday, would that make me an average chocolate consumer or a record breaker? If only someone had done that research. Apparently the average person in the world eats around 900 grams of chocolate a year. Nearly uh, a kilo. Nearly a kilo, yeah, but it is a global figure. Compared to Ireland though, according to Chagask, in 2020 the average person here ate 3.6 kilos worth of chocolate over the course of the year. Oh. So way, way above many other countries, way above the, the global average. And it would actually be above what we'd see in the UK. They're about three kilos. We're below the European average though. Five kilos is the European average. I'm surprised in, at that. Yeah, in Germany it's 5.7. So they're bigger, much bigger chocolate eaters than we are. But of course, nothing compared to the US. Nine kilos uh, per person of chocolate eaten in, in the what? US a year. People will think the US, obviously the biggest consumers of chocolate. Yeah. They're not by, by a, a big stretch. Uh, Switzerland is top of the table. Per capita, 11.6 kilos of chocolate uh, per year. And eat. They're eating the really good stuff, aren't they? Top yeah. notch. Yeah. And just how much are we spending on chocolate? Adam Maguire told Claire Byrne more on Wednesday. The global industry estimated to be worth north of one trillion dollars a year. Uh, here in Ireland, Chagas says uh, chocolate sales hit about 200 million euro in 2020. It's hard to get precise figures on, on uh, more recent sales, but it's probably a good bit higher than that. We know that people turned to chocolate a bit more during COVID lockdowns as a kind of little treat for themselves. And even if we were buying the same amount because of inflation, the price of everything has gone up. So even if you're buying the same amount of chocolate as you were three years ago, it's costing you a lot more. So the amount we're spending is, is definitely higher than it was. And it turns out that Claire has some strong feelings about this topic. She spoke her truth to Adam. And sorry to interrupt you, they eat bad chocolate they, as they, well. Yeah, they eat Hershey's. The, 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 yeah, with the, with the fake milk in it. I'm sure if the Americans got a good taste of Irish chocolate, they'd move on from that stuff well, they're well, eating. The US is the second biggest receiver of Irish chocolate outside of the UK. And the UK is about 220 million out of the 268, but the US is the next biggest as well. Yeah. Send more real chocolate <laughs> to America. Start the campaign. But all these fancy, shiny Easter eggs had no place in Oliver Cannon's studio. Tom Bond opposite me here and we've got uh, bits of sticks and we have flasks and things. We are set for bushcraft, Tom. Nope, he had gone authentic. Foraging with Tom Bond. He's got weeds with him as well. <laughs> what is going on? But tell us what bushcraft is. Basically, outdoor survival or even okay. reconnecting with nature. Loving being in the great outdoors. Just unbelievably fantastic places and a lot of it's still hidden gems. Everybody finds their own little corner. So how do you start out? Do you need loads of gear? A good pair of boots is number one, I always say. You'll always own them. Don't worry about spending that extra few, few pounds to say, mind your feet, they're going to carry you everywhere you want to go. Start off really basic. Get a flask, bit of hot water, make yourself a sandwich, take it out. Take it one step at a time. I have a few things here. A lovely lunchbox of herbs. I have nettle. Nettle? Mm. Okay, what do we do with nettle? It is a stinging nettle. But, you know, if you put it into a boiling water, it kills all the the stingers off it. So you just just stick the leaf in into a cup of boiling water on top? Here's a really interesting one that I'm going to give you. Okay, it's a little leaf. It looks like... um, It's the shape of an ivy leaf. Give it a little squash between your fingies. Okay, squash it now between the fingers. And smell it. It smells like... Oh... It smells like um, garlic. It is. It's wild garlic. Gorgeous. We have ramsons and that's called Jack by the Hedge. And the reason they call garlic is associated with the word Jack is because the devil. Oh, describe that for I us. could ask you to eat that. When you see that. Looks like a basil leaf. It looks delicious, doesn't it? It looks. But that's actually lords and ladies and that's poisonous. Poison. And this is the thing about it. Like when people are out foraging, it might look good. That's why you need the bushcraft well. skills. Net legs, anyone? Then Oliver tried the tea. I'm not sure how convinced Oliver was. I mean, he he gave it a good go. 
Sitting here with Tom Bowen before I let him go, we're having pine needle tea. You can use really mm. any tree, but it's hugely oh good my. in vitamin That's C. really nice. Uh, what about the Late Late Show? Says Patsy O'Mara and Money Gall. Actually, actually, do you know what? I'm actually here now. I was looking for the application <laughs> form. Oh, see the queue. See the queue out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm hiding in here. Oliver, it's very bold. And there was more honest to goodness food talk too, but this time in the radio drama studio. As we heard from Tapper, the self-anointed last High King of Ireland as he marches into his local butcher shop. Our king smokes his cigarette and marches his way up Parsley Street, parading past O'Donovan's butchers and gazes in the glass window. Such rare and fair fodder stands on display. Our Highness enters to better peruse the meaty elements. Slacks of raw red lozenged meat, slimy slumps of sausages and pork chops, ribeye steaks, legs of lamb, back bacon and brisk brisket. Victuals for the hungry carnivore. Oh, they best prepare me the finest of banquets, a feast fit only for a king. A great banquet shall be held for all the king's subjects. Oh, the festivities shall be frolicsome. We shall squash our hearts. Make wine of it. Drink the last of our love. Drink what love is left. Tapper, put out that feckin' fag. Hey, 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 have you the banquet prepared, Pat? The High King extinguishes said cigarette, and Pat the Butcher continues slicing meat. Sorry, sorry, Pat, but but tell me this, have, have you the banquet prepared? Oh, we have, Tapo, we have it prepared. All for the High King of Ireland, of course. Good work, good work, Pat. Pat, we want a wild boar, too, in the middle of the table, an apple in his gob. A wild boar. A wild boar with an apple in his gob. No problem. All hail, the last hacking of Ireland. All hail, Tapper, now get out. In that clip, we heard Pat Kinnevin as Tapper and Enda Oates as Pat the Butcher. Sound supervision was by Damien Chanel's and the last High King of Ireland by Patrick Fogarty was directed by Goretti Slavin. It was a winner in the PJ O'Connor Drama Awards. And to hear the full podcast of this play and hundreds more, go to rt.ie forward slash drama on one. And there was more standout drama too this week on our airwaves as the beloved actor Brian Murray, who first burst onto our screens as Florrie Knox back in the Irish RM days, joined Sean Rocks to talk about his new role in Deirdre Kinnahan's play and old song Half Forgotten. Deirdre Kinnahan's new play brings the celebrated Irish actor Brian Murray back to his spiritual home on the Peacock stage. Delighted that uh, Brian is with us in studio this evening along with his partner in life and indeed on Fair City, Una Crawford O'Brien and Deirdre Kinnahan. Can we go back to the events around Halcyon Days, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a play that you were working on with Deirdre? What happened? We were rehearsing the play Mm. and I noticed that Brian just wasn't up to learning the lines. Mm. And most unusual because Brian would be able to pick up a script and a few minutes later he'd know the page, no problem. So it took me a little while to make the suggestion to him that would he go and see somebody about it. There was a time, you know, before that obviously, Mm. when you, you get your script and I'd put it over you'd read it down read it down read it down read it down that's great next one you know, and, and it's there and then suddenly it started to kind of it started to go away until eventually uh, I had the script and there was no way that I could remember even learning them it was frightening and devastating 
Mm. You know, this is this is my job. This is what I love more than any. Do you know what I mean? This is yeah. my this is what I love. You know. You and know yet, I mean? it took him quite a while to acknowledge. Yeah. Well, of course. That he had Alzheimer's. Yeah. Mm. Who, who among mm. us doesn't want Absolutely. to steal anything that's unpleasant no, off? No. Yes. Yeah. I was just in the conversation with Brian and Una, uh, and I know and knew what an extraordinary talent Brian is. Maybe I can write you a play that you can read. That really led to. to where we are now. An, an old song half mm, forgotten. Absolutely. Yeah. Dear and Brian are old friends and when she realised what Brian was enduring, she decided to write a play that would help tell that story and that would allow Brian back on stage where he feels happy and safe. Do you remember then, Brian, getting this play from Deirdre and thinking, oh, this is something I might be able yes, to do? Yeah, that was that was just a, a fantastic feeling. Do you know what I mean? That you mean that we can do this? And for Brian, you see, it meant he could get back on stage. Yeah. When he got the diagnosis and when he did face up to it, he thought that he'd never be on stage again, mm. basically. Mm. So therefore, Deirdre gave him the, the most magnificent opportunity again to be on the stage, which is what he loves. How did you go about coming up with an idea that meant that Brian could, even with Alzheimer's, work through this script? Then I spoke to the Abbey and I said, OK, I'm going to write a play for Brian Murray, who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And my idea is to reflect Brian's own experience, but to create a whole new character for him that he can occupy. And we not only meet the older man, James, telling us about his life, but there is a younger version of him on stage who can hop in and out and play the various characters in his life and guide him through it. Let's just have a listen to how how they interact with each other. He has written memories down for himself so that he won't lose them. So he is reading from these and and bouncing back and forth off the, the younger character. And here's a section from an old song, Half Forgotten. Where am I? In the wings. In the wings of the Abbey Theatre on that first night of that first play, The Hostage. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A crucify. I remember. I do remember. I remember the sound of it. The heat of it. That first play. Oh. And the show runs in the Peacock Theatre until the 6th of May. Over on Liveline, meanwhile, Philip Boucher Hayes has been keeping Joe's seat warm, very warm, as the heat rose during a robust, we'll go with robust discussion, on one of those buckle in Liveline conversations. Now, Linda Kennedy, good afternoon. How are you? Hello. You Bye, are a you. co founder of the Irish Education Alliance, the, the group behind this protest. Yes, I am. It started with the news that a group called the Irish Education Alliance has launched a campaign to remove books from libraries that they say violate the Children's First Act. We are a large group of teachers that came together a couple of years ago. How large? There's there's a few hundred in the group. All exclusively uh, teachers? Teachers and some SNAs as well and some principals. We came together during the, I suppose, the lockdown period when we saw children being severely affected by wearing masks. So really we wanted just to support students and we wanted to support teachers. Okay, so, it's quite yeah. a jump from concern about masks to this protest now seeking to remove not, books from libraries. It's not really. It's still a concern for children. And also the whole library issue is linked to the schools. Okay. 
and the gender ideology so who's teaching. Anybody who's a parent is very, very concerned about the nature of these books that are in libraries. And as I say, it's not just to do with the libraries, it's also to do with the schools. Because as um, most people know now, there are changes coming into the curriculum and there are cro- there's a crossover of the books in the libraries and the books that are on the teacher's, okay. teacher's resource it, list for junior cycle curriculum that's Linda, coming in in September. Linda's recurring question was to ask if people had actually read the relevant books in the library. Have you, have you any idea of the content of these books? Have you, have you seen these books at all or...? Are you aware of this? Okay. Um, a lot well, of them now have, have, have changed them over to the adult section, uh, but I'd say about half are still in the young adult section, which are 12 to 17-year-olds, and they are children by law. So what I'm seeing, though, is one book to call uh, This Book is Gay, which uses yeah. terms which, frankly, uh, I and my friends would have been using when we were 11 or 12 years of age. Plenty of terms there that are maybe, so you- maybe hurtful, maybe offensive, but are in wide circulation and the kind of things that kids need explained to them. Now, I know that page very well, and it describes ways of doing that act, very explicit way. I would be so upset that they would read such material in such a crude manner than a child going into a library, a 12-year-old, coming across that book and just flicking through it, sexually explicit okay. material in there. But I Linda, if you don't want your children, if you don't want your children to read that material in a library, it's quite easy for you to restrict their lending card. These are books that children are not actually going to bring up to rent out, I would say, because they'd be too self-conscious. This Maybe they have a reason parent, for wanting to explore and understand this material. This is not a way to explain about sex education to children. But it's in a chapter called Sexy Fun Times. I know many, many children um, would not even have that on their radar. And to read it could be hugely traumatising. A book and which you as their mum or dad can... It states that it is against the law okay. to show sexually All right. explicit A book which you as their mum or dad yeah. can prevent them from so. reading and borrowing if you want. Breach Connolly, good afternoon. How are you? Grand, thanks, uh, Philip. idea of taking books off shelves or even moving them into adults or whatever, really does nothing except impose censorship. I'm going to bring Pat Cotter in here. Go on, Pat. Two of the most interesting things Linda has said for me is that there's no debate here. She's saying how 99.9% of people would agree with her. Like, I'm sorry, Linda, but you, you mustn't be living in the same planet that I'm living on. Now, there's certainly a need for age certification for any any culture of their movies and films. It's too sweeping a statement. But had you read the right ones, the ones that Linda was protesting against? I went and looked at some of these books yeah. myself this morning. It's, it's practically innocuous when I looked at it. In fact, if I wasn't directed there by a librarian, I wouldn't be able to find it myself. Over 14 to, to access those books. You can access books that's suitable for people over the age of 14. The idea that they put anything that would be um, massively endangering to children in children's ways. You know, it's, it's oh, unbelievable. Can I, can I, what, what book is, is it that you mentioned there? Uh, the a one book called Yeah, You're Gay. No, no, that's, that's not a book that we've targeted at all. But there are books there that are, that are okay. The conversation went up a notch with other callers from both sides joining in. It was gripping stuff. And then, just as the clock was ticking down, Pat rang Philip. You're a former school principal, but the reason that you're calling is that uh, your son is gay. Yeah, I 
the gate's going well. He, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a man now, and uh, he's in a relationship and all that. And from all my time, Philip, in in, uh, in schools, 20 years as a principal, the biggest form of bullying I noticed when I retired was anti-gay bullying. And I prepared thousands of children for confirmation, and they would have been 12 years of age and so on. Like, uh, I would have said things to them, you know, about sex and about having sex. Obviously, that sex is something that should be restricted to a, a, a loving relationship. I, I, I can't really comment on the books because I haven't actually read them. But my position on this is it's a very tough life for young people when they discover that they're gay. Philip, you have a country like Uganda now, given the death penalty. They are lost for information. There is literature out there for them that they can sort of lighten themselves, that they're not sort of the only ones in the world that feel this way. That's a good point to put to Jana just before we wrap things up. Jana, all they're doing is seeking a little bit of enlightenment. Yeah, I believe enlightenment is one thing, but back to child protection, I encourage every parent to okay. go to the library and read the books for themselves to make you, their own Pat, opinion. Do you think that the children need to be protected from these books? don't know what's in the books, but I think that there definitely needs to be a, a source of information, enlighten themselves and feel part of something, you know. You thank know. you, Pat. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, everyone, for today's conversation. From Live Run with Philip Boucher-Hayes, and I'd say he could have done with a cup of nettle tea after that show. Over the past few days, as we build up the visit of the American President Joe Biden, the airwaves have been filled with memories, recollections, analysis and painful reflections sparked by the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. On Sunday, Miriam O'Callaghan went behind the headlines to bring us the real story of that famous triumphant moment when Bono held John Hume and David Trimble's arms up high on the stage at the waterfront in Belfast. Just days before the referendum, two men joined Bono on stage with U2, SDLP leader John Hume and Ulster Unionist Party leader David Trimble. Both men had been strong political opponents, but in what became one of the defining images of the agreement, they demonstrated that nationalists and unionists were stronger together. She started by reminding us how the referendum vote was far from certain in those days beforehand. It was by no means a certainty that the people on this island would vote to accept it, with the unionist vote in particular hanging in the balance. Two leading voices from David Trimble and John Hume's teams, Tim Atwood and David Kerr, take up the story. I call it five days that rocked the agreement. You could see the pressure David Trimble and Unionist was under. And we knew that we had to do something dramatic to try and change the imagery of that campaign. And actually, uh, the idea for the, the U2 Yes Ash concert was on a Thursday and happened the following Tuesday. I knew Bonner was saying he only wanted to do something that would help both Trimble and Hume. So I spoke to him around uh, lunchtime on the Thursday and I said, Bonner, we need your help. We need to have a moment where we bring together unionism and nationalism, John Hume and David Trimble. And at that stage, we were just talking about a press conference and Bono says, I'll do anything for John Hume as long as it helps David Trimble. And that's where the essence came. So uh, the first, I think maybe on the Thursday, Tim, I got a call and explained this idea for the photograph that we all wanted to see or we all knew we needed to see, which was of Trimble and Hume, the, the centre ground of Northern Irish politics, standing together and looking to the future. You two at that stage were global superstars. They were stratospherically famous. And I couldn't believe that we could logistically pull this off at such short notice. 
but the guys were like, no, no, don't worry about it. We've got Paul McGuinness on board. We've got... Eamon McCann, the promoter, was the, pro- yeah. well, the first person I rang. And he came back within five minutes and says, I booked the Waterford Hall on Tuesday and we've got Ash, who were from Down Patrick. In terms of street cred with young people, they had it. So the guys rang me. I then hang up from that, walked out of my office down the corridor into the boardroom in Glengall Street's UUP headquarters at the time. And I, David Trimble's standing in the room with a guy called Ray Hayden, who was working on the referendum campaign with me. And I said, I've just got this phone call. Hear me out. I think this is a really good idea. And I explained it and David was on board. So we were off. The logistical nightmare of bringing all these people together to create that moment was explored further by Miriam. Before you get to the Tuesday, Tim and David, tell me about the Saturday, Tim. Weren't you sitting at home on Saturday oh. then expecting a call from Bono? Bono said he'd ring at 12 o'clock to confirm. At 12 o'clock came, half 12 came. I says, Jesus, he's pulled out. <laughs> so for some somehow or other, I managed to get telephone numbers. Dave Fanning from your parish. Yeah. I got Paul McGuinness's home number, spoke to his wife. I said, do you know where Bono is? Because... But I couldn't get him. And then about one third he rang. He says, I'm coming and you two are coming. That was a moment we knew that something big was going to happen. The significance of the image was instantly clear to everyone. But how did they persuade these sensibly dressed politicians to take the risk of removing their suit jackets? And not only that, but agreeing not to speak on stage. You were asking about why the jackets were taken off. I think that was Eamon McCann, the promoter. Now, obviously, these were two middle-aged men at a concert, a rock concert with teenagers. They weren't even old enough to vote. So uh, he says, take your jackets off. And it was Bono's idea that they would he'd bring them on the stage left and right. And he said, very unusual for politicians, you're not going to speak. And, you know, that moment That's that he brought them on the stage and says, we're going to bring two men who are stepping out of the past into the future was the moment that they came together and Bono was that bridge between unionism and national unifying them and then he did the most remarkable thing which is very difficult at any concert a moment silence for all the victims of the troubles that was that was very risky with a young crowd but overall it was an incredible moment and that was the image that went round the world as heard on Sundays with Miriam the joy of that moment was necessary as the years leading up to the agreement had been so grim for so many. Impermanence is a collection of essays by writers both from and living in Northern Ireland. The essays, commissioned by the Centre Culturel Irlandais, have been recorded by Clean and Ian Loon. And this week, writer Paul McVeigh, who grew up in Belfast, told his story. Travelling through the city into wealthier areas, I saw one of the most striking things that shaped my thinking for the rest of my life. Rich people didn't have the troubles. I remember my young self thinking, is it not enough that rich people have more money, better cars, better homes, go on holidays, but they are spared the troubles too? No army or police patrols, no painted curbs or flags, no barricades or walls or burnt out cars, etc. They lived like people in the exotic dream world I saw on the TV. I wanted a life like theirs. I hadn't known it was possible in Belfast. But simultaneously, I resented these people and, to my eyes, their easy lives. At one time, Ardoin was called the biggest slum in Europe. Time has brought better housing, and I didn't see the level of poverty and desperate living conditions in working-class areas in general. Trauma and the impact of having less passes through the generations, some would say genetically. Healing can take generations. 
scars can fade, but some are permanent. For him, finding the theatre unlocked a whole new world. At 16, I joined the drama club at my further education college. We hadn't had one at my school. I needed an outlet for all the adrenaline that 16 years of pent-up me was releasing. But I remember the faces of my parents when I told them that the project was residential. If permitted, I was going to stay at a Queen's University Hall of Residence for four weeks. It was in my city, 20 minutes drive from my house, but I'd never been up that well-known road where the rich of the city lived. Later, I learned that my mum used to clean a doctor's house there before I was born. The Ulster Youth Theatre was an incredible experience, one that changed my life forever. For a start, it was the first time I was actually popular. My peers, who came from all around Northern Ireland, they liked me. They found me cheeky, funny, quirky and rebellious. Proof of my startling newfound status as most popular, I dated the most popular girl in the group. In a production of Romeo and Juliet, I dated the stunningly beautiful, breathtakingly talented Juliet herself. I was in love for the first time. I was terrible at it. So unaccustomed to dating, I was a nightmare. Jealous, clingy and controlling. And needless to say, it didn't work out. Again, I mixed with different religions and persuasions. The arts have a way of doing that. But again, I found few from working class backgrounds. Everything I am now is made from some dust of then. I was taught the ephemeral nature of theatre. All this week on Morning Ireland, Vincent Carney, Conor McCauley and Una Kelly have been telling stories from the North too, from present day experiences to confronting the tortures of the past. On Tuesday, Vincent Carney spoke to people who are still suffering 25 years on. There were cheers as 78 Republicans and Loyalists walked out of the Mays prison on the 28th of July 2000. They included Sean Kelly, who'd been serving nine life sentences for the IRA's Shankill Road bombing in October 1993, which killed nine Protestant civilians and a member of the IRA. Also freed that day was Torrance Knight, a member of a UDA gang that shot dead eight people in the Rising Sun Bar in Grey Street in County Derry a week later, on the eve of Halloween, in retaliation for the bombing. One gunman reloaded his weapon and even joked about what happened, shouting, trick or treat. Seven months earlier, he'd been part of a UDA gang that shot dead four Catholic workmen in the village of Castle Rock in County Derry. One of those killed was an IRA member. The others were civilians, including 58-year-old Ger Dalrymple, a father of six. It was just unbelievable that Daddy, above anybody, would have lost his life in the Troubles. He was the most innocent, kind, caring man you could have come across. His daughter, Fiona Kelly, says the family was horrified that Torrance Knight, who lived just nearby, walked free just five years after being given 12 life sentences for his role in the two attacks. Torrance Knight was free to go and live his life. That was very tough for me, for the thought of meeting that monster just, it just really terrified me. She went on to say that their pain didn't end with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. While relieved the Good Friday Agreement signalled an end to the violence, 
Fiona says victims' families paid a high price for the peace. There was nothing in the Good Friday Agreement for victims, but the ultimate is peace. My children, nieces and nephews are growing up in a very different society to what I grew up in. The impact of this lives on for generations and families, as told to Vincent. Lula Malone's husband, Michael, was one of two undercover RUC officers shot dead by the IRA in a bar in Belfast on the 26th of August, 1987. My husband went to work at 3 o'clock and he never came home alive. Nula also feels that families of victims of the Troubles were forced to pay a high price to bring them to an end. My voice was never heard and I chose until this point never to have it heard. But people have to know the pain. Lifelong pain, the sentences we have. We're the ones that serve the life sentences. The Troubles changed their lives forever and no one date can alter that. And then on Thursday morning, Oliver Callan brought us this cracking story about the one-armed Dundalk footballing star, Jimmy Hasty. Paddy Malone joined Oliver in studio to tell him about this wonder. Paddy's dad, Jim, had championed Jimmy and growing up, Jimmy was a hero to Paddy and his friends. Family connection is that my father was chairman of the club with uh, Dundalk Football Club from 1955 to 1996 when he died. He heard about Jimmy and he went down to have a look at him. He, uh, he's from Belfast yeah. and... Uh, Dad was so impressed with them, he wrote his own cheque to sign him as a professional player. So he presents this idea he presents at a meeting, this to, he? he? presents this to a meeting, and one of the players was aware of a slight problem that Jimmy had, objected. Uh, Dad said, well, look, I've signed him. And the answer back was, your cheque, your problem, we're not covering it. They objected to him because when he was 14 years of age, underage working, in a mill in, in Belfast, he'd got the arm severed on the very first day of work. The word gets out, doesn't it? That word gets out Dundalk that Dundalk signed this one-arm player and everyone's going, what the hell is that about? 20 minutes into the match, one of the directors puts his head around the door and says, Jim, whatever you're owed, take it out of the gate. He has scored one, made a second, and he's unplayable. The opposition don't know what to do with him. <laughs> Phenomenon. Uh, he, he, he was incredible. Uh, many years later, I asked a referee that I recognised who had done League of Ireland refereeing, what was it like to referee in Oriel Park? Dundalk's home ground and he looked at me and says I hated the place I had to deal with Hasty I never knew when he fell was it on balance yeah. whether it oh, was right. deliberate whether he was looking for the foul but the one thing I knew every time he hit the ground the crowd was shouting for a penalty even if it was in the opposition <laughs> side <laughs> didn't matter really the crowd was just on, on my case the whole time he became like he was the Maradona for he Dundalk he was yeah then just as I was smiling to myself enjoying both the story and the storyteller this. On the 11th of October 74, Jimmy had been dragged from a bus stop and shot in the back by the UVF and was dead. And this is the end of this unbelievable story. He was well, a young man. He was, he was 38. He was a young man. Yeah. Two boys. They were two and seven at yeah. the time. Mrs. Hasty never talked until the UEFA documentary last year. Right? But I, I'm glad she did it because, you know, in 10 years' time, it will be impossible to put these documentaries together and, and, and explain. It's just about in time to get it done. So, with President Biden due in the coming days, we'd better get out of here and start sweeping the paths and making the welcome banners. And Martin Hayes is on hand to play us out, as heard on Arena on Tuesday evening. So until next week, enjoy the chocolate. Slán agus bánach.